Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. The town that I lived in prior to Portland is experiencing 24 degrees below zero right now. So that should temper our conversations about the weather. Um, I want to do uh, an update this morning before we get into the sermon, and it is related to our constitution and bylaws uh, changes. So today we had scheduled for a meeting to happen at 2 o'clock, and I'm going to postpone that meeting. And that decision comes after quite a bit of thinking and a lot of dialogue um, with other pastors and our elder team and so forth. And there's another one slated for January, and I'm going to postpone that one as well. Um, I want to put that whole decision kind of on the back burner for a little bit of time, and I, and I think that I've made a significant mistake uh, as a leader and as a pastor here. I see, so uh, my conviction that these documents are not serving us well and need to change is still very strong. But I've recognized that it comes after a lot of learning in the scriptures, a lot of thinking, and a lot of dialogue. And those are things that have been happening in my heart and soul, but I haven't spent the time necessary for you to understand why I'm thinking this way and why we as a lead team are thinking this way. So I've, I've in some ways, led us into a classic cart before the horse kind of scenario. I've gotten out ahead too far, and I think that what should be, what I would love for this to be, is a very edifying recharging, energizing time, and I think it's, it's adding an unnecessary burden to folks. So, I am sorry for that. That's a mistake, and I, I appreciate in these first months that I've been your, your lead pastor, uh, a great amount of patience that you've shown me, and I ask for more as I continue to learn how to pastor and lead. And know that we will continue that conversation, and we are going to continue moving in that direction. But I want to come to a place where as I, rather than me trying to say, here's why I see it this way, and I'm going to try to convince you how to see it that way as well, I want to just set our constitution and bylaws and statement of faith next to the scriptures, next to the gospel of Jesus, and, and help you to see the issues on your own and come to a place where, where it becomes you guys saying, Ben, we need to change these documents. And then I'll say, oh, all right, that's where we're at. I agree. You know? So I want to move in that direction, and I've gotten, I've gotten too far out ahead. So I ask for your forgiveness on that and, uh, and ask for your patience as I continue to learn how to communicate things well and clearly so that we can truly be unified we can truly be moving in the right direction together. So that's the update. As far as the letter that I sent and I printed and had handed out, there was a schedule in there for Q&As and discussions and then a vote and all of that. Uh, you can just scrap that for now, and then we will re-up when the time is right and develop a new schedule. Okay? That sound all right? All right. I'd like to pray with you, and then uh, we'll transition into the sermon. Jesus, uh, you are so incredibly good, and we love you, and we believe that you are holy and perfect, and, and as such, you are still 100% friendly and approachable, and how you pull that off is beyond us, but we approach you this morning humbly asking for your guidance here at Central Bible Church. Show us how you would live in Portland today how you would live here, how you would talk to people, how you would address our city and our neighborhoods and our friends and family. Help us to see that. Help us to have the courage to follow you and help us to see your new life growing in our own lives and in our community here at Central Bible. Amen. Christmas time. Christmas reminds me of my great-grandma Sadie's molasses cookies. 
She kept them in a Vulger's coffee tin down on the low shelf so the young children, when they came over, knew right where to find We called her Grandma Cookie as a result. We could find those molasses cookies. And they were old school back when they made them with lard, you know, real tasty. And they, I know we're like, what lard? That's disgusting. They were great. And they had this hard uh, frosting and icing. It was just, you could tap your fingernail on it. It was awesome. I love those cookies. It also reminds me of Grandma Joyce and the cross-stitched ornaments that she made for me over the years. I hang them on the tree each year. And it also reminds me of the fact that my parents divorced, that my family fell apart, or at least that we had fallen apart long ago, but this year we made it official. What an impact that has on me even today and now. My parents, they were married for over 40 years. And every Christmas, we used to gather around uh, Christmas Eve. And our tradition was to gather around the tree in the living room on Christmas Eve. My dad would open the Bible, and we always read Luke chapter 2 together as a family. And we spent some time in prayer, and then we opened the presents on Christmas Eve. And that's one example of how I learned to live, how I learned what's good, what's true, what it means to be a tartine, you know, that's my last name, what it means to be long in this family. I, I learned how to exist and who I was from my parents and from my family. I think in those early years, we all learn all of these things from our family, don't we? We learn about how the world works. We learn how to be good, how to not be bad. We learn how to behave. We learn what to believe, what it means to belong, or conversely, to be rejected. As time wears on, though, at best, we're exposed to different opinions, different opinions on how to believe or behave or belong. And at worst, the family that we learned all of this from falls apart and forces us to wonder if any of it was even real. They say, they say that the most significant impact on children whose parents split is the destruction of our identity. I have my existence as Ben from the union of Jim and Deb. So insofar as they are one with each other, I am one of them, and I am one with them. But when they fracture, now I'm one of hers and maybe one of his, but I am no longer one of them, you see? And deep inside, our identity is lost. It's fractured and fragmented. This is a big part of what happens when your folks split. I doubt anybody in this room has not been seriously touched by the impact of splitting families. Now they have become not one. So I say, who am I? I think this is why parents feel an instinctive need when they break that news of the divorce coming. What do we say? We still love you. Why do they say it? Because inherently, we know that that's what's being called into question. Am I still loved? Not just who am I, but who loves me now? We want to affirm them that that is still there. We're going to see in our text this morning, I'm going to be in Acts, and this is not a typical Christmas text, but we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to see how a fellow named Peter found his identity in the same way from his family. His identity formed from his upbringing. He didn't grow up in a so-called evangelical Christian home. But he did spend his formative years learning in a Jewish home. And we'll see how he learned identity, how he learned family, and more importantly, how he had to unlearn those things. He had to unlearn family. He had to unlearn his identity. Peter's family taught him some clear specifics on what's right and what's wrong and how to live, how to behave, what to believe, and how to belong. 
My family taught me those things as well. I'll give you a few specifics, some of these good, some not so much, just to sort of get you also in the framework of asking yourself, what have I learned from my family? What have I learned growing up? So Tartines, we Tartines are from Wisconsin, and so we trust in the Packers, and we reject the Chicago Bears. I think they're actually playing right now. But it's just, it's just, you don't, that's not something you make a decision on, you know. You're born into that reality. That's who we trust. We use Milwaukee tools, not DeWalt. We, we inhale some campfire smoke accidentally once in a while. All other smoke is the foretaste of hell itself. So there's no smoking in the Tartine family. We're churchgoers. We wear certain clothing to church to demonstrate wealth and power, and that's our view of understanding how to honor God. We don't swear or cuss, in public anyhow. We talk about sex primarily through an understanding of its many, many, many dangers. And then we think about sex only in terms of what should never, ever be done. That's 100% of my discussion growing up, what I learned about sex. Our family, I learned, is knowledgeable about the Bible far more than all other Christian traditions. They don't believe correctly, and we certainly do, and completely. And this was just ingrained deeply into me. We were a family that sees great honor and frugality. Cheaper is better. We're a family who loves the clean beauty of the outdoors more than the tar and the concrete of the city. Uh, our identity as a family changed even as we grew. So after living in Tennessee for two years, we became a family who never moved south again, <laughs> lateral or north. So we can go from Minnesota to Oregon, that's good, but not to California, that's south, you know. Alaska, you're okay. There's a bunch more, you know, I could keep going. We're, we're uh we're a people who hunt and fish. We're outdoors people. My great-grandma Sadie, the cookie baker, she was a crappie catcher. She could keep hundreds of crappies and perch. Amazing fisherwoman. We camp in tents, not trailers. We open presents on Christmas Eve, not on Christmas Day. We own German short hair pointers, not yap-yap dogs and not Labradors, <laughs> whom my dad still refers to as swamp collies. Okay, so I could just keep... There we go. You guys agree. I could go on. I could go on and on, and so could you. And I'd ask you, what are some of your specifics? Notice there were some religious, behavioral ones there, but there's all kinds of other nuanced identity formers, what kind of people we are. We're raised that way. What were you given by your mom and dad, by your aunts and uncles, grandmas, grandpas, guardians? How were you formed? How were you taught to think differently about yourself and your family? As a different kind of family, how we think differently than the rest of the world about money or TV or sex. How we think differently about food or clothing or transportation. How we think differently about work and education and recreation. All of these things, you know, there's different views and different angles. What's your position? You learned it from your family. For a good bit of time, as little tiny children, we actually just assume that every other family operates the same basic way, don't we? We just assume that that's the case until we have that fateful first night sleepover. And then what happens about bedtime? You've been exposed to so much unfamiliarity. You're smacked with this reality that families operate differently, and what happens next? The tears come. Yeah? We want our widow blankie. We want to call mommy. We say... I can't handle all this unfamiliarity. I'm not safe. I'm insecure. Mom, come pick me up. Take me home. It's strange, and we yearn for something reliable and something familiar. It's very unsettling when we're first exposed to the fact that some of the things we learned in our family are very different elsewhere. Now here's one more major, major identity piece. I gave you some specifics from my life, but here's one 
that I suspect everybody in this room shares. Maybe not, but if you don't, you're in the minority for sure. Because this is a way of living and understanding that we have just, we have been in this era of Christian thinking for a very, very long time. A lot of our evangelical churches were born out of this framework. I'd say it with three words. We've been taught this. First you behave, then you believe, and then you belong. This is a properly basic understanding of life with God and his people that, that if you're like me, you learned immediately in life. First you behave, then you believe, and then you belong. The absolute number one thing that we're taught to focus on in our childhood is behavior. Behavior. That was the number one thing in my family life. Rarely was I affirmed in belonging. I was never told, you belong to God, no matter what. I was always taught something different. I was taught that can come. That can be your prize, but first, there are these other things. I was made to believe that belonging to the family, my own Tartine family, really had little to do with my kinship with the family, and it had everything to do with how I behaved and what I believed. Whether or not I belonged rested solely upon those things. So if my behavior was out of line, I was made to feel outside, not approved of, lower than, disconnected from, not part of us. If my behavior was in line, then I was praised and raised up in glory. From age zero to ninth grade, almost everything that you can imagine was related to crafting behavior, performance in school or sports, music, whatever it would be, staying out of trouble, etc. Behave, behave. In high school then, it's still as strong of a behavior piece, but then you tend to focus also on how you think, what do you believe. And it has to be one specific way if you're going to belong. And I think that this is a brutal mentality that weaves its way in and out of the popular mind throughout all of the church's history. Behave, believe, then belong. Belonging to God starts with your behavior. We learn this from our family, and my point overall here is that we are formed by our family, for better or for worse, and I think this has always been the case. So transition your mind with me now back to Peter's day. We're going to go back to the first century, back with the little boy, Peter. Probably not what they called him, but Peter. We'll, we'll imagine little Pete, Okay. Back in the early first century, we might think of a little boy named Peter who's out with his mom in some unfamiliar countryside. They're out doing something, and it's the first time that he has seen a hog farmer driving a herd of pigs, little Petey. He had, he had once heard his uncle Reuben, we'll say, tell him about these strange animals, an unclean animal. And he kind of always wondered what they looked like. And so here he is. He's seen these pigs. And he said, oh, they look pretty cool. It smells a little off. You see, Peter and his family didn't care for pork. In fact, it was forbidden in their family, both in their family of origin, but also into the aunts and the uncles, grandmas, grandpas, great-grandpa, great-great-great-great. You could go all the way back. And not just his family, an extended family, but his whole community that he existed in. There's just no pig farmers. There's nobody having BLTs. It's not happening. Peter grew up in a Jewish home. And you might say to him, well, describe some of the specifics of your identity, what it means to belong. He would probably say something like this. Here's a few of them. We don't have anything to do with Gentiles or non-Jews. They're an unclean people. We circumcise our boys, every boy, on the eighth day. It's just the way it is. It's always done that way, no matter what. We say the Shema three times a day, a prayer to our God. We believe that the Lord is one mighty God. 
We keep a kosher kitchen. We believe that the Torah is true and we are a people who study it and live by it. We train our children in the ways of God. We do not eat pork. It is unclean. We don't eat birds. They're profane. We do not ever eat snakes or anything else that creeps or crawls along the ground. It's unclean. We stay away from all reptiles, except fish, and weasels and rodents and all of that. We stay away from all of these things. Little Pete learned these things from the very onset of his life. They were properly basic. They weren't something he kind of wondered about and asked questions about. If you're thirsty, you drink water. If you're hungry, you eat food, but not pork. (laughs) It's just the way it works. You just don't do that. Well, he grows up. Pete does, and as we kind of know the story, he becomes a fisherman, a good fisherman, and then he encounters Jesus Christ. God in the flesh meets him in his world, in his vocation. He encounters him, and Jesus changes his entire life, and he becomes, Pete becomes, one of the first Christians, if you will. And Jesus ultimately goes on to build the entire church on Peter the apostle, one of the first Christians. This church, Central Bible, is built upon this man way back in the first century, the things he said and did and revealed to us from God. Okay, so he's a pretty prominent figure in our history as a church. And in his role as a church leader, Peter was really trusted. They really looked highly toward Peter, and he was believed to be reliable conservative, correct in his doctrine, and a safe person who would protect the way that things are supposed to be. And then one day, his closest friends and colleagues noticed something extremely odd in Peter's behavior. Very strange. He was eating with a Roman soldier named Cornelius. Now, you might say, well, who cares? He's having lunch with somebody new. This was a big deal. As a Roman, Cornelius was most certainly not circumcised on the eighth day of his life. He was not a Jewish man. He is not one of us. He is not in the family. And when the Jewish Christians like Peter were to gather for a meal, they kept to themselves. They sat together. They stuck to their own. Those people who did things the way that they're supposed to be done. They ate only from the kosher kitchen. They, they attended to the things that were good and safe and clean for the holy people of God. They're not, notice, there's not a maliciousness here. They're loving God. They want to honor God. Peter is leading them. They trust him and so forth. And now, now he's doing something very, very different than what they had been taught to do. They said to him, what, what is wrong with you? They literally said this to him. What is wrong with you? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I bet all of us have heard that once or twice in our life. A parent or an authority figure saying, what's wrong with you? I regret to say that I've said that to my children. Paraphrased, I think that that statement means, don't you care that you're the worst Why don't you behave like us so you can belong again? That's kind of what that statement means. And I would just say, I would love it if we could collectively agree to never say that to our children ever again. What is wrong with you? What a division it creates between you and your child. So back with it. What is wrong with me? Peter says, well, here's the deal. And he kind of goes into, you know, channeling the future Martin Luther King, he says, I had a dream, baby. I had a dream. I'm just kidding. He's not channeling anybody here. It's Christmas. No, he says, uh, I did have a dream. I had this vision. So it will be in Acts 10, starting in verse 9. And there's what he says. They're wondering, what in the world? And he says, God has, has blown it up for me in my mind. Uh, and it starts with this dream. He says, I went up on the flat of a roof to pray the other day. It was about noon, and I was really hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, I fell into a trance. He has this vision, this dream. 
fell into a trance, and I had this crazy, crazy dream. Verse 11, I saw the sky open up, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to me, get up, Peter, kill, and eat them. No way, Lord, I said to God. My family taught me never to eat such things. In fact, I've never, I have never eaten anything unclean in all my life. Nothing that our Jewish laws have declared profane or unclean. But then the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean that I have made clean. The same vision was repeated three times in a row. And then the sheet was suddenly pulled up into heaven. Why did they repeat it three times, Peter? His buddies surely asked. Peter would have probably said something like, because I have a real problem with thinking that I understand things better with God and I'm quite stubborn. I told God no. And God said yes. No, that cannot be the way you want me to live. That's crazy. God says, yes, it is. No, Peter says a third time. That's not right. God, you have not interpreted this Bible correctly. (laughs) Believe me. God says, yes, Peter. This is what's happening now. It always has been a plan of mine to expand your horizons. It was this very dream that taught Peter to be cool with Cornelius and to eat with him, an uncircumcised non-Jew. From the earliest moments of his memorable existence, Peter had been taught to understand himself as one who understands the uncleanliness of the Gentiles, people who have tremendous power to contaminate you. But God was saying something very different than what Peter had been taught. Now, in light of the gospel that God himself came to preach, that's Jesus who we celebrate this time of year, it is to preach this gospel that I have come, Jesus says. He came to preach this gospel, and and in it, as he reveals this covenant with us, this new teaching from Jesus himself, he reveals to us that view of the Gentiles needs to change. Now a new fellowship of a very different kind of people was to form. God himself spoke directly to Peter, and he gave him this instruction, and I would argue that he has given a similar instruction to you and I in principle. God instructs us to unlearn family as it is, to not just take it and swallow it hook, line, and sinker without any further reflection, without any assessment through a gospel way of thinking. See, I am making all things the way they once were. That's not what Jesus says, is it? See, he says, I am making all things new. There is a newness that God is inviting us to see. Walter Brueggemann's a scholar, Bible scholar, writes this about our text. He says, the crisis that Peter faces was that he learned in that moment of a trance in which God spoke to him afresh that he had to move beyond his faith tradition learned from his family. He had to break free from what his family had taught him. He had to face the fact that what his mother told him, which was the best she knew, was no longer adequate. He had to unlearn some of his tradition, unlearn his family, unlearn his mother to discern that the distinctions of us and them, of clean and unclean, of Jew and Gentile, in the large mercy of God is simply now wrong. And that was very, very unsettling for Peter to have to learn that. It's hard for us to imagine how unsettling. I think he must have been feeling an overwhelming anxiety. I mean, this guy had never, ever 
done this before in his whole life on good moral principles he had learned from the best people he ever knew. And here God was saying, yeah, eat. Eat with these people. Eat the food that they're eating. It's okay. I've made it clean. He was hitting what may have been the greatest moment of crisis in his entire life. And the people watching him were understandably unsettled. I mean, it bummed them out. Peter's actions were opening their faith in ways that were straight up shocking. Old Jewish regulations were being violated now by the gospel. So that now the church of Jesus is open to unclean people. Sinners like you and me. And as Peter unlearns his upbringing and opens himself to the Spirit of God so that he can follow Jesus as a real Christian, he learns that his view on church must expand exponentially. There will be no going back to the way things were ever again. That's interesting, isn't it, by the way? You ever feel real bummed about something, anxious or sad? When I do, I have this strange urge to look at old photographs. There seems to be this tie to sort of what I imagine my past to have been a better time. It was, uh, it was better for some reason. Pictures are good at showing me the things I like to remember and kind of help me to not remember all the other stuff from back then. But there's this urge we have going back together or back to where things once came from, as though maturing in Christ and the maturity that I learn each week is really, yeah, 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 whatever. That's not that great. It would have been so much better if you could go back. At times like that, I want to whine and cry like a kid at his first sleepover. This world, this newness, this stuff, I don't get it. I don't like it. I want something reliable and familiar. Perhaps, if you think about the whole thrust of the Bible, you don't see a real call to return to Eden, as it were. Sometimes we hear that, returning back to Eden. But it seems that 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 started things off, but God is always directing our minds and our hearts toward his future, a new kingdom, a new creation, a new place that he's leading his people to, a new land, etc., etc. God seems to always be constantly moving us ahead to an expansive universe filled with incredible love and mercy, something way beyond our familiar boundaries. Paul, he reminds us that this unlearning and relearning process is going to be ongoing. So sometimes whenever I'm faced with something I'm challenged by, somebody says, hey, Ben, you've got to unlearn something. You're, you're wrong about this. You need to learn something new. My mind immediately goes into, okay, what's it going to take for me to get that done? And then I'll be done with it. I'll have learned it. I think this is one of those things that you never learn and have complete. It's a way of life we step into for the rest of our existence. Because when Paul says there is no longer Jew or Greek, that's not something where you're like, oh, okay, cool. I passed that on my quiz. To actually come to a place where you genuinely do not see a social division between Jew and Greek, but recognize them as one in Christ, takes a lifetime. It will take constant patience and reminding and praying and being exhorted by the scriptures and the body of believers to actually truly, deep in your heart, see people that equally. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. We love to say that. It makes good sense. It sells in our culture today. Everybody's equal. But for us to genuinely, truly not value people higher or lower based on their power or money is crazy difficult. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of having your heart conditioned by the Spirit of God who's working in you. There's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free. There's no longer male or female. That's going to take a lifetime for us to understand that some of the social divisions that we have been taught is just inherently the way things are. Paul reminds us that in the gospel framework, those divisions dissolve because he says all are one in Christ. 
There is a new horizon God is inviting us to understand, and it's, and it's profoundly difficult in, in many ways because it pushes so hard against what we were just taught early, early on. The social boundaries that Peter grew up to understand as just the way we operate or the way things are have now given way to the uniting power of Jesus. It's not to say that those divisions were terrible and people who honored them were wrong. God makes clear distinctions, and he has prior. So sometimes people might think, oh, are you inviting me now to despise the old as though they were all just bad folks? That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying there's something new now. We preached on this a few weeks ago. New wine can't go into old wineskins, as it were doesn't mean that the old wineskins were bad, but we're moving into something new. Whatever function those boundaries may have once served, even if it was a good function, even if there was truly God-given wisdom in those social divisions, it's now different. That function is fulfilled in Jesus. Hence, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. I'm not saying it's all stupid, just abolish it and get rid of it. I'm just saying all of what it was trying to accomplish, I accomplish now. And so, in my accomplishment, this is what the world now looks like. And that world is one where these old social boundaries and divisions are literally vaporized. And all now are one in Christ. Jesus shatters those divisions. So Peter was being invited by the Spirit of God to see a merciful newness, beautifully blossoming in a once decaying world. We too, like Peter, are men and women who are courageous and open to the Spirit of God and how he leads. That's who we are built to be. Newness from God that comes to a pinnacle moment in the words of Jesus himself in John 13, verse 34 and 5. Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Okay, now right there. He's telling us, I'm giving you a new commandment. And this is going to run past the first ten. Okay? Those ten commandments are are good. I'm going to give you another one. And this one is new. And it goes beyond those ten commandments. And this is it, that you love one another. That's interesting that that would be a new commandment. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. And of course, we're invited to see how Jesus loved people, and I can guarantee it was far beyond a warm and fuzzy affection. He laid his life down for people. He humbled himself for people. It says, you should love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, you might say, well, yeah, Pastor Ben, that's legit. Actually, that is how I was raised. That's what my family taught me. I think I'm good to go on this one, so that's cool. And I would say, that's good. Just hold on for one second. Let me try to press one more time here. I'll go back to a couple lines from Brueggemann. He says, to be loving toward all. That is, of course, what good families have always taught. We've always learned that. But with little children, the invitation to love everybody tends to be qualified and limited by fear and caution. So love one another in the family or in the neighborhood or in the church. But kids pick up on a secret message that this horizon of love is actually very narrow. And it does not really refer to everyone. Okay? So love everybody, but, but be really careful of strangers. Be really careful of this kind of people. Love all of the Presbyterians, but not the Baptists. Be careful around the Baptists. Uh Yes, love all, except be careful, love, with these ones. Love all of Christians. Love all Christians, but be really careful around Muslims. They, They contaminate. They could be unclean. Watch out for etc., etc., etc. You know what they are. The different groups to be very, very wary of. Don't go near, don't talk to, don't think about, don't pray about, 
stay away. Until we end up loving mostly just our own very specific kind. This new commandment to love one another extends well beyond our traditions and our mothers and our fathers and our very families. It also totally overhauls that system of behave, believe, and belong. That framework for understanding kinship with one another. Jesus' gospel, if we're going to paraphrase a part of it, I think it would say something more like this. You belong to God. You bear his image. Yes, you are the result of a certain oneness between your mother and your father, your parents, and you are one with them in a true, very real way. But the new world that I want to invite you to see is one where you are really, truly a child of God far more than you are a kid that Jim and Deb had. A genuine child of God. You belong to me, God would say. Now, believe in me. And when you do, the way you behave will change. Belong, believe, behave. It's a total reversal, isn't it? Start with belonging. Recognize that I have made you clean. You do not need to have all of your behavior dialed in before you can belong. Recognize that I will teach you what to believe during a lifetime with you as my learner, my matesis, my disciple. You do not have to have all of your beliefs dialed in before you can belong. This is why I ask you to remain teachable throughout your entire life. And for some of us who are still shackled to the old way, we feel this fear and anxiety. But where's the line? Where's the measure? How do I know who really belongs? And I want you to hear God's word this morning. I love you as the sinner that you are. I welcome you to come to my communion table as you are. The only requirement for coming to the communion table is that you're a sinner. And you recognize a need for Jesus. Remember that I have lived and breathed and died for people who were foolish, for people who are non-believing, poorly behaving, and sinful. That's who I came to minister my life to, Jesus says. Every Christmas season, we see themes of family and friends and togetherness, soaking and saturating our greeting cards and our Christmas carols, and it's awesome. I mean, it's just plain beautiful. I mean, it's one of the best parts of this whole season. Belonging, neighborhoods coming together, the carols, all the traditions we have, it's fantastic. It kind of warms our soul like a velvety hot chocolate. And I remember after sledding, I'd come in and my little hands are just fire truck red and I'm in deep pain because I'm so cold. I should have came in like four hours ago. You get that warm cup of hot chocolate, you know. That's this time with family and friends and togetherness. It's just part of it. But sometimes behind those greeting cards and carols, our own concrete experiences of family and togetherness often swirl sadly in lonesome tumblers of scotch and extra slugs of wine because it's real painful. It's real, real hard to get through the season sometimes. And we try to manage this underlying intense pain. I experience my parents' divorce differently this time of year, just like, just like you experience your family differently this time of year. I experienced that childhood abuse all over again. The tears, they mock me. On Jesus' birthday, sometimes I say, where is this God? And I'm filled with anger and the desperate anxiety and the total upheaval of who I am. 
kind of a lost identity brought about by a corrupted world. Hanging ornaments on the tree is always a mixed bag for me. I think it's going to get like, it's going to be like that forever. Grandma Joyce's small cross-stitched ornaments are really good to hang and they remind me of her wrinkly and soft, gentle hands. And they also remind me of her gravestone in Monroe, Wisconsin. Christmas brings reminders of hope and peace. And the longer you live, it also moves us to revisit the pains of divorce and death and other loss. And if we stay locked into the way things are, if we fail to listen to God who through his gospel invites us into something new, a new kind of kinship with him, a newness of life beyond our imaginative capacity, then Christmas becomes a time of trudging through, getting the chores of shopping or decorating done, meditating medicating the pain with brandy and bonbons. To those of you who have been given a sense of the perfect family early in life but have watched that dream drift away only to drown in a sea of divorce and abuse and abandonment and isolation and rejection, I would welcome you to see God's newness. First, Know that you belong to God. That he loves you. Not as a potential creation who might one day bear his image, but as a new creation who bears his image right now. Is your father and Jesus is your true family. And as you live with him, he will teach you how to believe and how to behave. And he'll do so with a tremendous, powerful truth that just cuts through you down to the bone level. He will. And he's also going to hold you like a brother who will never let you go. Your experience-conditioned heart, the way we've been raised, it may cause you to scream something like a child at that first sleepover, unfamiliar. This isn't how it's done. Just like Peter screamed at God. Those of us who were given an identity through a certain understanding of family will scream, no, I cannot be acceptable with your kin. I, I may be an acquaintance. I can sit in the back. I'm okay for that, but I don't really yet belong. I don't behave well enough. I don't believe strongly enough or correctly enough. God, I know how this works, man. And God says to you, you say no, but I say yes. Yes, you do belong to me and to my true people. I am your true father, and I give you identity, and I accept you as my very kin. You belong to me, now live with me. Would you just live with me? And I will teach you all about believing and behaving. No, I am not good enough. Yes, I love you. No, you don't understand how this works. Yes, I actually do. No. Yes. Yes. Yes, my friend, yes. And know this as well, says God. He says, I once gave my friend John a big revelation, okay? And he wrote it into a book called the Book of Revelation. Go figure, great title. And I said to him, and this is what I told him in that revelation, I said, my home, I am God himself, and my home, the place that I choose to call home, is among mortals. It's among you. You are my family, and I will dwell with you as your God. You belong to me, and you will be my people, and I myself will be with you. And I will wipe every tear from your eyes, and death will be no more. 
Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things will have passed away. And my son, first born in a major, then he lived with you for a couple of decades. He's now seated on the throne right next to me. And he says to you, see, I am making all things new. Pray with me. We love you, Jesus. Where else would we go? Whether we've lived in this world for a day or a hundred years, we know that it doesn't offer life. You alone have the words of eternal life, and you alone are our true family. I want to ask you, Jesus, that during this Christmas season, which is often so brutal for people, me, many of us, if not every one of us here, we experience real pain through this time. I ask that you would be ever-present with us through your Spirit, that you would let those suffering moments become times of reflection for us to unlearn family as it was and to relearn or newly learn what it means to be a family with you. And for every man in this room who believes himself to be one who can't yet belong to you, I ask that you would help to change his heart this very moment. That you would give him clarity of vision and truth to understand that he does belong to you. For every woman in this room who would believe that she is still isolated from you, that she can't yet belong because of a weak belief or behavior that's unclean in some way. Help her to hear your words. Help her to see your truth and help her to believe that she actually does bear your image and does belong to you. Jesus, I pray this on behalf of all of the men, the women, and the young people in our midst that we would recognize ourselves as those who belong who are part of your family. Thank you for being so kind to us over these years of our life. And we trust that we'll have all of an eternity to experience your welcome, your embrace. You are a great father and we love you and we trust you. Amen.